Welcome to the Net Positive Podcast, a series of podcasts on clean energy and the environment. The Net Positive is about crafting healthy communities and a sustainable world. These explorations are designed to educate and inspire. That's when we get action. Greetings. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and this edition of the Net Positive features Econet News, Volume 23, Issue Number 4, dated April 20th, 2021. Flanagan's Ecologic, Dennis Hayes Reflects on Earth Day. 51 years is a long time, a good run. Certainly not a momentous year or milestone, that was last year. But this year, I launched the Net Positive Podcast, And for our podcast, First Earth Day, we feature an interview with Dennis Hayes. He was the national coordinator of the First Earth Day in 1970 and founder of the Earth Day Network. He is credited with creating the largest secular movement in the world. By 1990, Earth Day was mobilizing 200 million people in 190 countries. By now, and in collaboration with some 75,000 partner organizations, Earth Day has mobilized a billion people worldwide. Dennis is warm and thoughtful, well past his activist days, but with, with his convictions that haven't changed a bit. He puts fledgling Earth Day in perspective, juxtaposing environmentalism with the Nixon administration, the Vietnam War, Cambodia, and Kent State. There was decency in Congress then. Members could and did come together to address air pollution, smog, and water pollution, the worst of which was made so stark by the Santa Barbara oil spill. I remember Earth Day in 1970, the roadside cleanup organized by Eastwood School. This was the first Earth Day, announced in a full-page New York Times advertisement. Our gang pulled pulled a ridiculous amount of trash out of the bushes along Yellowcoat Road. People had thrown their bottles roadside for years, some disposal system. Earth Day was about changing behavior, for me, recycling. It was about demanding an end to rampant air pollution. It was about cleaning the water. Rachel Carson's silent spring had shocked us all. Imagine a spring with no birds chirping gaily, long gone due to chemicals and toxins spewed into the environment by industry. This was the time of Love Canal a tearful Native American in a canoe, an awakening of American eco-consciousness. President Nixon saw Mayor John Lindsay in New York attracting huge crowds on Earth Day and was simply jealous. He soon thereafter formed the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, to shine the light in his direction. Shortly thereafter, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act were signed into law. Many of us see the role that Earth Day played in forging a broad environmental coalition. The Earth Day Network went after the Dirty Dozen, 12 members of Congress with particularly bad environmental voting records who were up for re-election. Because of the spotlight shined on their environmental records, seven of the 12 were defeated, and the political power of the environmental movement was proven. Backing up a bit, it was Senator Gaylord Nelson, a junior senator from Wisconsin who first envisioned environmental teach-ins at universities across the country. Nelson recruited Dennis, 
took him away from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and made him the national coordinator. The, envir- the idea of environmental teach-ins morphed into Environmental Rights Day and ultimately Earth Day. Some five months later, 20 million people took to the streets. According to Dennis, there was a rare political alignment. Democrats and Republicans, rich and poor, could agree that we only have one planet and that we better take care of it. The Earth Day movement was about taking all these threads, weaving them together, and forming a nationwide rally. Walter Cronkite called it a nationwide outpouring of mankind. We were saving life from foul skies and waters. Earth Day held major events in 1970, 1990, 2000, 2010, and 2020. As the energy program director at Rocky Mountain Institute, I spoke at Earth Day 1990 in Lincoln Park, Chicago. There were 100,000 people in the park, 20,000 in the stage area. I took the stage after Mayor Daley and Senator Paul Simon. No, Chicago does not need nuclear. That's dangerous and costly. Instead, Chicago needs energy efficiency. It's safe and inexpensive. I said with a compact fluorescent light bulb that held high to a thunderous applause. Those were the days. The podcast features Dennis's story at the head of the Solar Energy Research Institute, later renamed the National Renewable Energy Lab, or NREL, in Golden, Colorado. Dennis was appointed by the president, Jimmy Carter, with a mission to chart a pathway to get 20% of all energy use in America from renewables by the year 2000. Dennis brought the best minds in from around the country to develop a renewable energy roadmap. But when Reagan took the presidency, in came the dull gray men in dull gray suits, walking dull gray hallways, thinking dull gray thoughts. Quickly, Hayes finalized the research and shared it widely. U.S. Representative Richard Ottinger read the report into the public record. There was a new vision and a roadmap, substantiating the claims and visions made by Amory Lovins and others. Later, Brickhouse Publishing released the report as The New Prosperity. I have a copy in my library. Dennis is a class act and a friend that I have known since 1986. After a distinguished career in both academics and activism, he's been at the helm of the Bullet Foundation, a foundation that has had the mission of making the Northwest region exemplary in terms of sustainability. Today, Bullet is even more laser-focused geographically, specifically supporting sustainability in a region west of the Cascades, from Portland to Vancouver, the so-called Emerald Corridor. Bullet's headquarters in Seattle features a solar mortarboard solar array of note, and rainwater collection. It uses one-seventh the lighting energy stipulated in the building code. It makes a striking statement. Dennis has made a lifetime of striking statements. Check him out on the Net Positive podcast on Spotify, Apple, and Google. Quote of the week. To restore the standing of the U.S. as a global leader, we need to address the climate crisis at the pace and scale it demands. Specifically, the U.S. must adopt an emissions reduction target that will place the country on a credible pathway to reach net zero emissions by 2050. We therefore call upon you to adopt the ambitious and attainable target of cutting GHG emissions by at least 50% below 2005 levels by 2030. That's an open letter to the President Biden from 310 corporate executives last week.
Corporate Executives Push for Climate Action An impressive roster of 310 corporate leaders, investors, signed an open letter to President Biden earlier this month indicating their support for the President's commitment to climate action and setting ambitious targets for the United States' new nationally declared declaration required by the Paris Agreement. The corporate leaders are asking the Biden administration to nearly double the emissions reductions target set by the Obama administration. The letter was organized and published by We Mean Business and Series. The signatory businesses collectively represent over $3 trillion in annual revenue and employ 6 million workers in 50 states. The 310 corporations are a diverse group. Google, Walmart, McDonald's, PG&E, Edison International, Apple, Coca-Cola, Ikea, Microsoft, Nike, Target, and Verizon, to name a few. From Stonyfield Farms to Tiffany's, they hail. Also a signatory is the Altria Group, the parent company of the tobacco giant Philip Morris, USA. Such companies have supported Republican platforms, but see eye-to-eye on the climate emergency. EVP and Chief Global Impact Officer, Officer for McDonald's, Kate Fallon noted, we have responsibility to the nearly 40,000 communities we serve to protect the planet and build a more resilient and equitable future. The executives are calling on Biden to announce deep emissions reductions targets this month in advance of the April 22nd Global Summit on Climate Change. They are asking for for cutting GHG emissions by 50% below 2005 levels by 2030. That's what most environmental groups want, and now what these executives consider ambitious and attainable. President Obama had pledged to cut emissions by 26 to 28 percent below 2005 levels by 2025. Many environmentalists said that wasn't enough. President Biden plans to announce his new goals on or around Earth Day and at a virtual summit of world leaders that he is hosting. Microgrids 1.5, Critical Loads. In the last article in the 10-part series, we focused on the Santa Rita Union School District and how microgrids there were designed to cover average loads. As part of that project, we installed wireless thermostats to control HVAC. These loads would be cut in the event of a power outage when each campus goes into battery mode. These are the times to cut loads. Energy resilience is expensive stuff. The more resilience you want, the more it costs. Thus, it makes sense to identify what's critical. What's essential in a power outage? A computer system? A medical device? Don't forget the coffee maker. Ecomotion is working with a number of sites now, slimming down the critical loads to about 20% of the facility's full load. Why so small? Again, to make resilience affordable. If you want 100%, you will pay dearly. At 20%, Systems can often be financed at parity. When developing microgrids, try to avoid this question. What do you want to back up? Why? Because it seems that everyone wants to back up everything. That's expensive. Instead, we ask a fundamental question. What's the purpose? What is this resiliency for? Is it to maintain refrigeration or communications or to provide for cell phone charging? Is it to power medical equipment or to maintain delicate scientific experiments? Is it to keep kids in school, data centers, operational? This clarity defines our target. 
So now with our resiliency target in place, we dig in. We now know how much energy we need to store. Let's say the purpose is to maintain the IT functions at a company or to main refrigeration at a food service facilities. Those are the functions that are critical. Those are the loads that constitute our design. We size the storage to cover these loads for the duration selected. Loads that are not critical are not backed. They might include air conditioning, resistance heating, architectural lighting, elevators, EV charging, and waterfalls. So how to do it? How to limit the microgrid's functioning in battery mode? If a facility has a sophisticated energy management system, it can be programmed to toggle back loads to critical only in battery mode. Many large buildings have custodial lighting and ventilation pre-programmed. They can be programmed for battery mode. Less sophisticated facilities do it the good old-fashioned way. Humans taking actions such as turning off escalators, elevator banks, fountains, and even non-essential lighting. In schools, staff is instructed to steer clear of photocopiers during these periods. Another strategy is to wire critical circuits into a sub-panel. Only these circuits will be backed up when the grid goes down. In some instances, wiring a sub-panel can be easy, mounting it right next to the main panel and rerouting select circuits. This is how power walls are installed for household installations. In other cases, trying to wire critical loads into sub-panels can be extremely challenging and just not worth it. Imagine a school campus with multiple buildings far afield. Controlling specific loads at the building level in this instance is near impossible. Another complicating factor for subpanels is trying to meld together loads operating on different phases in a three-phase system. In some cases, wiring subpanels can be more expensive than adding more battery capacity to cover the entire load. Then you can forget about rewiring for critical loads altogether. That is what that is what we did in Santa Rita. But critical loads there are still in focus. Thus again, we use the energy management system to cut HVAC loads and have trained administrators, teachers, and staff to cut off all other unnecessary loads during battery mode. The goal for sizing resilience is to enable a facility to get through night one. Then the sun comes up and the solar recharges our microgrid, enough to operate that day in battery mode and to get through night two. By carefully managing daily use, and only powering critical loads one way or another, solar and storage microgrids can operate indefinitely in a carbon-free mode. Our colleague Kirk Stokes at MBL Energy stressed the importance of client expectations regarding microgrids given the high cost of batteries and resilience. They have to understand that battery mode operations are different than grid-connected times. You've got to set expectations, no HVAC, no electric appliances. That's it. That's how you create resilience at a reasonable cost. Repurposing power plants. It wasn't too many years ago that coal was the dominant source of electrical generating capacity in the United States. In the year 2000, coal still powered 50% of U.S. electrical generation. In simplest terms, there were about 500 large coal-burning power plants nationwide generating half our power. Coal has been mined in 25 of the 50 states. The Energy Information Administration reported in 2019 that 241 coal plants are still operating. 290 plants had been closed since 2010, largely due to lower cost and cleaner natural gas. 
Sierra Club upstate, updates the EIA data. Its Beyond Coal campaign reports that there are 339 plants now that are down. That's 180,890 megawatts of coal-fired capacity shutdown. There are still 191 U.S. coal plants generating power. So, what to do with an outdated coal plant? Many have been converted to natural gas, but the story is more colorful. Beloit College took a former Alliant Energy coal-fired power plant and turned it into a student union and recreation center. The old plant, now named the Powerhouse, is situated on the bank of the Rock River and houses a swimming pool, indoor track, cafe, meeting rooms, fitness space, lecture hall, and field house. In Massachusetts, a 1,600-megawatt coal plant is being demolished to make way for a logistical port and support center for wind turbines expected to be erected 35 miles offshore. A plant in Missouri is shopping proposals for repurposing, potentially a battery storage center or a biofuels manufacturing site. There's a company in St. Louis, Environmental Liability Transfer, that specializes in taking properties with environmental challenges and redeveloping them. It has purchased seven shuttered coal plants. It specializes in finding ways of reusing built infrastructure, like access to rail, ports, and waterways. Electrical infrastructure has value too. Data centers use tremendous amounts of power and are now repurposing retired coal plants. In 2015, Google announced that it would buy the 1.6 gigawatt Widows Creek coal-fired power plant located 4.8 miles from Stevenson, Alabama. The plant was recently retired and had been operated by the Tennessee Valley Authority, the TVA, generating 9 billion kilowatt hours annually. It was known for having one of the tallest chimneys in the world at 1,001 feet. The smokestack was built in 1997 and removed in a controlled demolition in 2020. Google announced that it would invest $600 million in the plant, retooling the existing power infrastructure and converting the plant into a data center. The project broke ground in 2018, tapping into the transformers, the power lines, and other equipment to bring clean power on site. Google will use river water to provide cooling to the servers. In 2019, Google announced that it had reached a deal with TVA to purchase the output of several new solar farms, a combined 413 megawatts of power, 1.6 million solar panels. The deal committed Google to a $5 billion investment in renewable energy in the form of a power purchase agreement. Quite a reversal. Clean power coming in versus decades of the dirtiest electricity generation going out. In Ithaca, New York, owners of the Cayuga Power Plant announced that instead of overhauling the coal plant with natural gas, they were considering a shift to hosting a solar power data center. Another data center is planned for the Somerset Operating Company's 586-megawatt coal plant on the shore of Lake Ontario near Buffalo, New York. Plans are underway to convert nine shuttered coal plants in Pennsylvania. One is the Sunbury Generation Plant, now partially demolished. Possible uses include a data center, warehouse, and grow house. But converting these plants is not always a walk in the woods. Experts point out that, th that these plants sometimes come with big challenges, like ponds of coal ash, a hazardous residue from the burning of coal. In related news, 
The Dwayne Arnold Energy Center in eastern Iowa is the site of a now idle nuclear plant. Now the site will soon host a 690 megawatt solar farm. The 615 megawatt nuclear plant was 45 years old and slated to be decommissioned in 2022. A severe storm shut the facility a few months early. Next Era Energy of Florida will build the solar on 3,500 acres of land surrounding the plant. It will also install 60 megawatts of batteries for power storage. The project will cost $700 million, will provide 300 construction jobs, and is slated to come online in 2023. Next Era Energy Resources currently has ownership interests in 3,160 megawatts of operating solar projects in 27 states. Constructing the Loop in Vegas The project began in 2019 at the Las Vegas Convention Center. Now tunnels, lights, action. The Loop has been built by Elon Musk's Boring Company. It costs $47 million to build, fixed pricing. Four mini tunnels, 1.7 miles in length bored with the Godot Tunnel Boring Machine. 40 feet below the convention center, it was built in just over a year with zero road closures. Even with the convention center in full swing pre-COVID, there were reportedly zero attendee disturbances. And now convention goers can be whisked from one end of the convention center to the other in two minutes. 62 electric cars, Teslas of course, and soon to be autonomous, will shuttle passengers. The system will serve 4,400 riders per hour. But wait, Musk is not stopping there. The Boring Company is planning to expand the tunnel system to Vegas's resorts and even to the airport. The entire system, up and down the strip, has been planned and submitted to the city. The Boring Company is promoting it as a completely different travel experience, Disney-like. The World of Concrete will be the first major convention event to use the loop this coming June. Microbial Soil Sequestration This is right out of Wired Magazine, an article that addresses two of the world's most pressing problems, climate change and soil degradation. This boils down to a simple imbalance. There is too much carbon in the air and not enough in the soil. To a soil tech startup in Australia, the solution is patently obvious. The Soil Carbon Company specializes in microbe-mediated carbon sequestration. It's a method of removing carbon from the atmosphere via microbial fungi and bacteria. A biological treatment applied to seeds prepares them to convert atmospheric carbon into a more stable compound that can be stored deep in the ground, potentially for centuries. The special fungi are dark septate endophytes, that live symbiotically within the roots of the host crop. In turn, carbon is captured through photosynthesis and then stored in a non-soluble form, fungal melanin compounds. The process increases the water holding capacity of the soil. The Soil Carbon Company is now testing the fungi with crops such as canola, soybean, and wheat in Australia and in the United States and hoping to bring it to market in 2021. Reportedly, the technology is low-cost and easy to adopt. All farmers have to do is inoculate their crops with microbes sold in freeze-dried form and let nature take its course. Helsinki's Offshore Thermal Energy Storage Concept The city of Helsinki plans to be carbon neutral by 2035. 
It has a goal of decarbonizing its district heating system by 2030. That's not easy. It's cold there, and the heating demand is intense. There are no obvious solutions. So the city developed the Helsinki Energy Challenge. It offered a million euro reward for anyone to come up with a viable alternative to fossil fuel use for heating the city's hundreds of thousands of homes and buildings. One of the competition's winners is called Helsinki's Hot Heart. It's pretty far out, a vision of 10 floating reservoirs off the city's coast that would store heat in seawater. The design even has a recreational angle. Four of the 10 reservoirs would have partially open roofs and would be open to visitors, featuring tropical plants and heated swimming pools. Here's how it would work. Renewable electricity would be used to run heat pumps to heat the seawater and store it in the floating reservoirs. When heat is needed, it would be sent to Helsinki's district heating system, an existing network, toured by Ecomotion years ago, that provides hot water for household heating throughout the city. This is a type of thermal storage at an unprecedented scale. It could potentially be used by any coastal community facing sea, lakes, or rivers. The architect Karorati explains that water efficiently stores heat. It is also easy to store seawater in basins in the sea because the water inside has similar pressure to the water outside, simplifying the structural requirements for construction. In related floating news, Singapore is now home to one of the world's largest floating solar arrays. The 5-megawatt array will produce 6 million kilowatt-hours annually, offsetting 4,258 tons of carbon dioxide. The Sunseep Group launched the solar farm in the Strait of Johor off Woodlands. It is made up of 13,312 panels, 40 inverters, and more than 30,000 floats. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time.